Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 90. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord. Good afternoon. Uh, for those of uh, us who haven't, we haven't met, uh, my name is Joe. I'm a pastoral resident here on staff at New Hope Fellowship. We spent the month of January gleaning wisdom for the new year. And today we'll conclude these teachings with a prayer for wisdom. So let's pray together once more. Uh, Lord God, uh, we look to you and your word. And we believe that you are truly here, not just as a historical figure or an idea, but you are a living God who is here among us now. And so, Lord, speak to us. Open our ears so we can hear your voice, that our hearts would be touched and changed by your truth and to live after you. Help us, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. How will you approach your remaining days? The majority of 2024 remains before us. And so what can we expect looking ahead just to this year? At the beginning of every calendar year, my family, my wife and I, we we kind of decide upon a theme, a theme that will help frame our day-to-day -day lives and kind of give us a focus. 
And we usually base it off of the, the nine aspects, the nine fruit of the spirit that we find in the letter to Galatians. And for, so for 2024, our family theme that we decided that we landed on is joy. Partly because it was time for it, like we kind of went through the other ones. But also, joy is something that my wife Diana and I, we, we decided, yeah, that, that's what we want. That's what we need. Wouldn't it be great to experience more of joy in our lives? And although we're still in the month of January, the reality hit. There have already been days filled with much gladness and ease and comfort and goodness. But there have also been delays and interruptions, days when we have felt defeated, just exhausted. There will be heartbreaking days of sorrow. Then there's a seemingly unending toil and hard work and labor that goes into every day. And what about the troubles and the sufferings that we will face? We wonder about the sleepless nights where we lay awake with worry that are to come for this year. Can we really have joy in all of this? How will we approach our remaining days? How will we approach the rest of this year? And where is God in all of this? We need perspective. And the psalm today, the prayer of Moses, grants us some perspective. He gives us insight into what we can expect from God. The main idea that I would like us to see through this psalm, the main idea is this, that we can count on the goodness of God. Simply that we can count on the goodness of God this year and on our remaining days. We can count on his goodness. Psalm 90, which Nancy just read for us, this psalm is unique. It's the only one written by Moses. So it's the oldest psalm. And it is so arranged in the whole Psalter after the Psalms where the people of God were just lamenting and complaining before God. They're heartbroken. Why? Because you know what the book of Psalms was? Psalms was a prayer book for the people. And originally it was given to the people when they were in exile. And so they would go through these Psalms as prayers, trying to remember God and his promises and trying to cling on to any kind of hope because they were in a situation where their leaders had failed them. Their hearts had gone astray and they were living out the consequences of their sin in, in exile, under oppression. They were not in a good place. And so this Psalm of Moses, interestingly, comes right in the middle of it. And his prayer is a reminder to the people of God who were worried and who felt hopeless about their future. That in spite of all the human leaders and kings who had failed them, that God has always been their God. And so that is the perspective from which Moses meditates. 
Let's look at verse 1. I'm going to read mostly from the New Living Translation, a different interpretation of these words so we can kind of see a different color of this psalm. In the verse 1, it reads this, Lord, through all the generations, you have been our home. If you recall, Moses, he was a leader of a homeless nation. They had yet to arrive in a promised land. For hundreds of years, they were in slavery in Egypt, and God had just delivered them. But due to their wandering hearts, God now allowed them to wander in the wilderness for decades. And so, in a very real way, this is what Moses is saying. Lord, we're not even home yet. We don't have one. But Lord, through all the generations, you have been our home. You're our home. And I want us to get this, that this is not just an idea. I think for us, we who have homes, we have, maybe you have, we kind of assume that we'll have a, a place to lay our head at night. We assume maybe, for many of us, that we just kind of belong that when we hear something like the Lord is our home, it's kind of this abstract idea. It's just an idea. But God is not just an idea. Here's the living God, his very presence with his people. Look at his interaction. Look what God says in Exodus chapter 25 and chapter 40. It gives some insight into what happened with Moses and the people of God. And this is what God says to Moses. Have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. Remember, right now they're in the middle of a desert. They're in the wilderness. They don't have any infrastructure to speak of. And God is saying, I want to be with you in a very tangible, real way where people can see and feel and know that I am with them. And so, build me a sanctuary, a tabernacle. It was just basically a series of big tents and an altar for sacrifice so that I can live among them. So God is intentionally saying, I'm going to be with you. And later on, towards the end of Exodus chapter 40, when Moses and the people, they finished the work of constructing this tabernacle, it says the cloud and the glory of the Lord. That means God's visible dwelling presence filled the tabernacle. And a cloud of the Lord hovered over the tabernacle during the day, and at fire, at, at night, fire glowed inside the cloud so the whole family of Israel could see it. The pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. They could literally see the presence of God amongst, amongst them in their midst. And it will be right in the middle of their big camp. And this continued throughout all their journeys. And so when Moses said things, says things like, God, you are our home, it's not just kind of this esoteric kind of philosophical idea. He is literally saying, you are our living God. You are among us. And not just us, but you, ha you have been. From our forefather Abraham and throughout all of our journeys, Though all generations, you have been our home. So we see that God was with his people. God was with his people in a very real way. And so I wonder, what does that mean for us right away? What does that mean for you? When home, when home is unstable, when your home 
that you were hoping for, that you've built up, is now on the brink of being lost. Whether that's in tragic ways or whether because some of us are kind of growing up and that's going to be the next stage. Some of us will be moving on to different cities or different schools. When home is changing and not really certain, when what you know is not yet so solid, what would it mean to you that God is your home? that God is with you. This is Moses' meditation. That's his assumption. God, you are with us. And so now we see in the first third of this psalm, verse 2 through 6, this kind of a meditation. He's not really asking God for anything yet in this prayer, but it's a meditation. And look at what Moses meditates. His meditation, if I have to sum it up, is this, that God is our eternal author. That God is our eternal author. I'm going to read verses 2 through 6 for us. Moses says, Before the mountains were born, and before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from beginning to end, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, Return to dust, you mortals. Because for you, a thousand years are as a passing day, as brief as a few night hours. You sweep people away like dreams that disappear. The light grass that springs up in the morning, and the morning it blooms and flourishes, but by evening it is dry and withered. God is our eternal author. We see here through Moses' words that God is the one who gives us life. And he is the one who takes it away. He calls us back to him. Just as you and I, none of us here had any control or say or effort put in to us being born. We didn't do that. We were just born. Ultimately, our end and our fate is not up to us. In this country, in our society, it is a common kind of pursuit, a common saying, and almost an assumption that we are the captains of our own fate. There's poems and songs written about that, and we're told this all the time. And yet, here's Moses, who died at the age of 120 years old and is writing this psalm at the end of his life who has all of this perspective, and he's saying, remember, God, we remember, before you, we're just mortals. You are the one who created us. You are the one who calls us back to you. You are our eternal author. We're not sovereign. We're not in control of even our own lives. Contrary to popular belief, you, God, are our author. Do you recognize, do you recognize that God is God over your life? That he is really your author? That God is the eternal creator of everything and everyone? That our only hope in life and death is that we are not our own, but we belong body and soul to God? What would that mean for you, knowing that God is your eternal author, that he is actually writing your story. 
He is leading and guiding you and shaping and forming you, even now. We're aware that God is our creator. We're also aware that God is holy and has created us to be holy. And Moses, now he kind of, you could say, complains or brings up a problem. Look at verse 7 through 11. And the problem is this, that our sin angers the holy God. Our sin angers the holy God. Verse 7 and 8. He prays this, we wither beneath your anger, God. We're overwhelmed by your fury. You spread out our sins before you, even our secret sins, and you see them all. He acknowledges that God is fully aware of who we are, is fully aware of our sins. Even our secret sins, the ones that no one else knows about yet. The ones that we're certainly not proud of. The ones that remain unconfessed. The sins in our lives that we ourselves sometimes are not even fully ready to acknowledge and admit. That we're still denying. That we're still dismissing. That we're still burying. And saying like, that's not a problem. That's not a problem. Hey, you know what? Everyone else does this. Why is this a problem? God is fully aware and he sees them for what they really are. A departure from his good purpose and his good creation. Nobody can stand before God, the righteous judge, and say, I'm innocent. Not in this way. In other words, to kind of clarify, God is rightfully angry with the world. He's rightfully angry with the evil in the world. He is rightfully angry at the sin in our own lives. Remember Moses, he has already seen this with his eyes. He has seen that in the, in the land of Egypt, that God judged the Egyptian gods and Pharaoh for being so arrogant and against God. He has seen that God has demonstrated his wrath and anger towards Israel's enemies. And God has brought forth his terrible justice and wrath toward his own people when they disobeyed and strayed from him. God is to be feared. He is God. And he is rightfully angry with the evil in the world and is angry at the sin in our own lives. As he continues on in verse 9, and we live our lives beneath your wrath ending our ears with a groan. Seventy years are given to us. Some even live to 80 and beyond. But even the best years are filled with pain and trouble. Soon they disappear and we fly away. Who can comprehend the power of your anger? Your wrath is as awesome as a fear you deserve. Church, you and I know that there's no such thing as a trouble-free year. Thinking a couple of weeks from now, there's a Lunar New Year that some people will celebrate, and usually there's wishes of prosperity and great blessing. And yet, we know, 
you and I know there's no such thing as a trouble-free year. Our lives are filled with toil and trouble, struggles and terrible happenings, weaknesses, sickness, great evil, the things where we misspeak and misact. This is an honest and realistic take on life. And sometimes our instinct is to to shield our loved ones from danger, or, or we try to avoid or ignore the suffering, or even numb ourselves to it. Sometimes our instinct is we point our finger and blame something or someone else. But the truth remains that the problem in our lives is the sin that separates us from God. This is true of me. This is true of you, your family, the ones who are people who are not like you. It's true of us all. And Moses saying this, it's like our sin, we know it angers the holy God. And yet I want us to consider this. Considering the power of God's anger towards sin, we see behind that anger that God cares deeply, that he cares deeply. He cares enough to be angry. He is not indifferent. You see, God is heartbroken over sin. Because he is not only our eternal creator and the author of our lives, he is also our loving father. His anger shows that he is genuinely grieving over the evil and the sin that harms us and deforms us. God is rightfully angry. Wouldn't we expect, wouldn't we want God to care about the evil in our lives and in this world enough to be angry? God is rightfully angry with sin. And I want us to consider this. Moses, he's so far reflecting, God, you are eternal. We are like nothing compared to you. We're so finite and small, but you are the eternal creator of everything. You are the one who gives us life. You can take it away at any point. You could sweep us away like a dream. And God, you know everything about us, our deepest, darkest fears and secrets. You see our sins and you see them all. And you are a righteous judge. And who can stand before your anger? And you know what Moses does? His response to that is not, so therefore I'm going to hide. Therefore I'm going to run away. Therefore God, no, don't look at me. God, I can't stand before you. God, I'm just going to give up. It's not worth pursuing after you. It's too much. No. He turns to God in prayer. He counts on God to be good. This is his prayer in verse 12 to 17. If I had to sum it up in one phrase, it's this. God, please show us your goodness. God, please show us your goodness. Even though we're aware that sin, our sin is not pleasing to you. Even though we know that Our efforts and our lives are just sometimes to feel so futile and just so finite and limited. Even though we know the effect of sin is to separate us from you, we're counting on you. We're turning to you 
because we trust that you are good. So God, please show us your goodness. We're expecting God to be good to us. So that's how and why we turn to him in prayer. So to kind of frame the rest of this prayer, how does God show us his goodness? How? It shows kind of three ways. And the first is this, God teaches us wisdom. How does God show us his goodness? He teaches us wisdom. Look at in verse 12 what Moses says. So, this is the part of the prayer where he asks God, right? So, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. In other translations, so teach us the brevity of our lives. Teach us how short our lives really are. Give us perspective so that we may grow in wisdom. I like how this, that the words say, get a heart of wisdom. That doesn't mean I'm going to flawlessly execute every decision from here on out. That doesn't mean that. But a heart of wisdom, a changed heart, a soft and moldable heart. And what is, a, what, is, what is wisdom anyway? We've been hearing for the last several weeks, if you've been with us. But it's a fear of God. That is the beginning of wisdom, to fear the Lord. So gaining a heart of wisdom, think with me here, is having a soft heart that turns away from foolishness and learns God's ways instead. And trusting that if he is our author, if he's really good, then he's worthy of our trust. So we live in ways that are pleasing to God. What he genuinely wants, we genuinely want as well. That is getting a heart of wisdom. That we can count on God to show that he is good towards us as he invites us and he teaches us. He doesn't say, hey, figure it out. I'm tired of you. You know what I said. No. He says, I'm going to teach you wisdom. He is our good and faithful, patient teacher. He teaches us what is good and needful for our lives. We can count on his goodness. So that's one way God shows us his goodness, that he teaches us wisdom. How else might God show us his goodness? And think of the second for in verse 13 and 14. God is compassionate toward us. He is compassionate toward us. Look at it in verse 13 and 14. He continues on. Oh Lord, come back to us. I'm going to pause there. That's a weird thing to say. You know what that phrase, come back to us, means? It's the same word. Shuv at... In Hebrew, it means repent. The same word that is used for people like us to turn from our foolish ways and turn to the righteous way. Same word. Turn back. And so that's what, that's, that's what he's saying. Turn back to God. How can we say turn back to God? He's saying, oh Lord, come back to us. Come back. Come back to us from your fierce anger. Not that God needs to be corrected, but what he's saying is like, God, we know that you're angry, rightfully angry with sin, and yet don't remain angry. Come back to us quickly. How long will you delay? He's basically saying, quickly, Lord. Our lives are short to begin with, and we're mortal anyway. And then so quickly, we need to know that you are good. Don't delay and take pity on your servants. That means give us comfort, give us the relief Show us your kindness. God, we're counting on you to be good towards us. We're counting on you to be compassionate toward us. 
He says, satisfy us each morning with your unfailing love. Satisfy us each morning with your unfailing love. The unfailing, loyal love that God has that is not dependent on our performance or our actions or our being. But because God said so, because God himself committed to us, because God is faithful, Lord, we're depending on you to be faithful and loyal in your love so that we may sing for joy to the end of our lives. just want to highlight, do you see in verse 13, it says capital L-O-R-D. In the whole entire psalm, in Psalm 90, he says capital L lowercase O-R-D. That's just a title. Sovereign master, right? But whenever you see capital L-O-R-D in the Bible, that is God's personal name, Yahweh. And this is how God himself revealed his name to Moses. I am Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, God who is filled with compassion and mercy, who is slow to anger, who forgives the iniquities, the rebellion, and the sin, and shows his steadfast love to thousands of generations. Do you see what Moses is saying here? He's not just saying, Lord. He's saying, Yahweh, he's invoking this name. It's like, Yahweh, you said so yourself. This is what you are. This is who you are. This is what your name means. Yahweh, Lord, you said that you would be compassionate. Yes, Lord, you are angry, and you will not remove, you will not just excuse the guilt from those who are guilty. You will visit it upon the third and fourth generation, and yet... Your anger is but for a moment compared to your steadfast love that endures forever. God, yes, you have a right to be angry at sin. Yes, and amen, you do. And yet we are counting on you to be compassionate towards us through and through. That your mercy will triumph over that judgment. I think that's why, one reason why, that he can say, so that we may sing for joy to the end of our lives. What causes them to sing for joy? What causes us to sing for joy? When we know that we ourselves cannot fix this relationship, we ourselves cannot rescue ourselves. We, can, we, we, can't, we can't do it. We're too limited. Our sin and our heart betray us. And yet when we turn to God and we expect him to be good and say, Lord, even through the dark night and the morning at the break of dawn, at first light, satisfy us with your unfailing love. And because we can count on you to be good and loving toward us, we can rest secure. We can sing for joy through all of our days, regardless of what may come. What we know of God is when God hears the cries of his people, God moves towards the suffering of his people with compassion. When sinners would cry and turn to him, God moves towards sinners that he may show us his goodness. 
is a very, very simple and uh, imperfect example of this. Just the other day, my family and I were going out for a walk. It was hard to know what else to do, and I have young children who need to get walked, <laughs> like pets, because they have too much energy. <laughs> Otherwise, the house will be in tatters, right? So we went out for a walk, and we would go for a walk, and it was still kind of muddy and wet, and there was still ice everywhere in the park that we went to, and it was very muddy and very slippery. So I told my young children, careful of the puddles. And just like it happens in most families, one of them listens. Okay, father. And the other one has a mischievous grin on his face. It's like, ah. And I try to explain. It's like, hey, we're going to be on a walk for a while. We're not going to be going home. And it's very cold right now. If you get wet and muddy, it's not going to be good for your feet. And so I'm trying to convince my young child, it's not a good idea. I know you want to, but it's not a good idea. Do not do it. So he kind of does it anyway, but, you know, it's a little bit, it's fine. But it starts getting on my nerves, and I say, like, don't do it. Don't do it. Trust me, you're going to regret it. It's not going to be good for you. Don't get your feet wet. And there's a moment where he just looks at me, and he finds, like, this, the biggest puddle he can, right? It's not just, like, a thin layer of water. We're talking, like, like <laughs> deep. And I see what he sees, like, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't jump in. I'm not going to carry you. It's not, it's not going to end well for you. And I'm telling you, he ran towards it. It was a full-bodied, flat-footed, right? Just completely soaking wet. Just mud, wetness. Every, and it's like his shoes, are, his shoes are wet even now. It's like, and so I may have yelled at him. I may have just, oh, you know, it's like, God, what are you doing? And so, you could tell in that moment, I was upset. He could tell that too. I had warned him. He went about his own way. And he did the very thing that I told him not to do. And he was a mess. And you could see him looking out the side of his eye, a little bit worried because he knew that dad was not happy. My wife, wisely, she kind of calmed me down. And after a few moments, my son, he comes running up to me as if nothing happened. He wants me to pick him up. And I pick him up, and now I'm muddy. Because he's muddy, I'm muddy. I'm just like, oh, I just washed these clothes. But I pick him up, we embrace, almost as if nothing happened. And somehow he knew he could count on me picking him up and giving him a hug, and that I'll be okay. But although there was a flare of anger, the anger would just be for a moment. But what he count on, what he expected, what he could depend on, was that in the, at the end of the day, it would be okay. He could expect a hug and a warm embrace. That would still carry him home. I won't share this as if it's a model to, to follow because it was an imperfect parenting moment. But in a more perfect, in a more perfect way, just like my son got into a mess and I hugged him, I took on his mess. Ah! But the love and the compassion overwhelmed the anger. It took over. 
And in a more perfect way, God's anger towards sin is just and right. But his anger is just for a moment. Where is it? His mercy endures forever. We can count on God to be good towards us in the way that he shows compassion towards us and forgives us. And that's what Moses is banking on. He almost just assumes it at this point. And the last thing that I see here and how does God show us his goodness is that God completes his work in us. Let's look at verse 15 to 17 as we close. That God completes his work in us. Moses prays this, give us gladness in proportion to our former misery. Replace the evil years with good. Let us, your servants, see you work again. Let our children see your glory. And pause there real quick. Our children, too, can count on his goodness. Get back to that. In verse 17, and may the Lord our God show us his approval and make our efforts successful. Yes, make our efforts successful. As Moses concludes his prayer, he is trusting that God will show forth his goodness to us by completing his work in us and through us. It says, give us gladness in proportion to our former misery. You see that line, it says, replace the evil years with good. And isn't that what makes our God good, our good and gracious Redeemer, who replaces the evil years with good? What you meant for harm and evil, God, you turned for good, for our good, and for salvation and life. That's what our God does. And Moses knew this. So he's just saying, give us gladness in proportion to our former misery. Yes, there have been some difficult times. And yet, I'm, I'm expecting and I'm trusting in you, God, that you will replace the evil years with good. It doesn't mean pretend that they never happened. It doesn't mean dismiss or deny or reject the evil or, or somehow pretend that trouble doesn't exist or avoid it. He's saying, I'm trusting that you're in the work of replacing evil with good. I trust that you are the one who is working out your goodness even through evil. And continues on, it says, let us, your servants, see you work again. Do you see that? It says, let us, your servants, see you work again. He's, <laughs> one way to look at this is this. It's like, God, we've seen you work before. But our memories are terrible. Our faith falters. We need to see and experience your good work in a way that is sensible and tangible and makes sense that we could grasp onto. Because sometimes when we struggle, we forget. Sometimes when we're doing really well and successful, we forget. Either way, we forget. So God, let us see your good work again. Give us some hope. Give us a reminder that you are really God, that you are really good. That's, some, that's a prayer that you can pray to the Lord. Maybe it's been a while since you've had a real testimony of faith to share. So let us, your servants, see you work again. God, work in my life again. Show me, Lord, that you are good and gracious. Show me, Lord. 
And look at what it says next. It says, let our children see your glory. Let our children see your glory. God, the way I experienced you, the God, the way I know that you are real and that you're worthy, that's the work that you've done in my life, in my generation, in my time, in a particular way. And let your same gospel truth and the goodness of who you are and your glory show that to the next generation, to my children. They're not going to be saved in the same time, place, and manner in which I was. They're not going to come to know you at the same age that I did. They're not going to come to know and worship you in the same manner and style that, that I was used to. God, I don't know when and where and by whom, by whose hands this will happen. But God, let our children see your glory. That they may too, instead of only hearing with their ears, they may see and experience and really know that you are God, that you are our Savior, that you are worthy of their trust. I can't manufacture that. No matter how hard I try, no matter how much I care, I am not the author of my children, but God, you are. And so God, let them in your own time, in your own perfect way, I don't know when and where, it may be years from now, it may be after I have, am long gone, but Lord, I trust in you, let our children see your glory. And may the Lord our God show us his approval. His approval, you see that word approval? It just means his favor, his beauty, or his, his delight. God, show us that you delight in us by making our efforts successful. Yes, make our efforts successful. Somehow the work of our hands, as limited and as toilsome as it is, thank you for this divine partnership that we have with you. That is not just all us, and then we just ask you to sign off on, just sign off on it. It's not just all you, so we can just, we're just helplessly standing by. But somehow in this divine partnership, as I work, and Lord, I trust that you're working. Lord, establish the work of our hands. Show us that somehow this will actually count as part of your good and great plan. That you're replacing evil with good, even through the work of my hands. Remember, Moses, remember who, who, who's praying this? He never got to see the promised land after all those decades of hard work and wandering. In the same way he's saying, like, God, there are some things that will go beyond me and my understanding and my vision. But Lord, I trust that in your goodness, the way you're going to be good is you're going to complete this work that I myself cannot complete because I can't save anybody. I can't perfect the work and this legacy that I'm working up to. But Lord, in your sovereign goodness, you will for your glory and for our good. We're ultimately depending on his favor. We're counting on him to be good. And I end with this in a more perfect way. In a more perfect way that goes beyond the covenant with Moses. God answers Moses' prayer in Jesus. Because Jesus came to live amongst us. He was our home. Our sin angered God to the point where he sent his son as a perfect sacrificial lamb and the perfect priest as an intercessor to stand between him and God. 
And not only that, but he took upon that mess and, and the wrath of God and the sin upon himself so that the anger of God was satisfied fully in Jesus and his death on the cross. And much more, he imparted his righteousness and holiness unto us if we believe by faith. And Jesus, he is working in all things for good. In other words, his perfected work on the cross shows us our destiny too. If we have faith in Jesus, we can know that suffering and death and the troubles in this life that we face is not the end of our story. The message of the cross of Christ is that even through great evil, even through great injustice and suffering, that God works out good and life everlasting. Yes, we surely carry the cross in following Jesus, but the cross is not the end. Resurrection is, because death is defeated, and we have a new life in Jesus. And so now our destiny is this fullness of life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's real wisdom for the year. Real wisdom is trusting that God is with us. Real wisdom is depending on Jesus and trusting that he has dealt with our sin. Real wisdom is being assured that Jesus is redeeming and recreating all things for good. Real wisdom is counting on the goodness of God. We can live and work in our families and homes and communities with a real hope that God is working all things together for good and we count on him to be good. I want to encourage us, maybe this week, this is a prayer after all, to read through the psalm once more and use it as your prayer to gain perspective for your own life as you get ready to, to finish out whatever this year has in store for us. Count on the goodness of God. We too can be satisfied in the morning with the unfailing, steadfast love of God so that we may sing for joy all our days. I invite us as we close, instead of me just praying for you, let's put this in practice together. Put this prayer up on the, uh, on the slides and uninvite us. Maybe we can pray this can we pray this all together in one voice out loud? And these words are just adapted straight from Psalm 90, in which we just read. And as you're comfortable, let's read this and pray this prayer out loud as a prayer of trust to the Lord, trusting that we can count on him to be good in our lives this year. Let's pray. Eternal God, you are with us. You are our home. You see our sins. You know our lives are filled with troubles. Hear our cry to you. Forgive us. Be near to us. Lord, replace the evil years with good. Let us see how you work for our good. Let our children see your glory. Grant us renewed purpose in our work. Show us your delight, just as you delight in your son, Jesus. And satisfy us each morning with your unfailing love, so we may sing for joy all our days. Amen.